Hello and welcome to another Red Hacks, your favorite show about being a left-wing journalist in a neoliberal world. As you probably know, my name is Joanna Romero, and if it so takes your fancy, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joanna Romero UK. And if you're about to open those apps, why not follow the actual host podcast of this show, the ever-fascinating Politics Theory Other, where Alex Doherty has interviewed a plethora of left-wing authors and thinkers on their work and their solutions to the absolute headache of our socioeconomic system a.k.a. capitalism. You can follow, like, and share PDO on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Paul Theory Other. Today's guest is, as mandated by our otherwise rather neglectful government, in his own home while I am in mine, and we are recording through the magic of 21st century technology, otherwise known as a phone call. He is undoubtedly an inescapable figure of Britain's political landscape. Ever since co-founding Novara Media in 2011, I'm talking, of course, of writer, broadcaster, activist and political commentator Aaron Bastani. Aaron, thank you so much for being on Red Hacks. Uh, my pleasure, Joe. It really is. Um, it's lovely to talk to you about something we both care about so deeply. Indeed. I, I thought that to start off this particular episode, I thought of talking about the inception of Novara Media and how obviously that was also about your own political development to a degree, but certainly focusing on the history. Because I know that a lot of Red Hacks listeners and a lot of Navarra listeners are always permanently curious about how did this come about? What mm. was the inspiration? And mm. of course, we've known each other for just about 10 years or something yeah. throughout student student movement and Occupy and so on. And for me, the creation of Navarra was almost a no-brainer. I mean, I thought it was brilliant, but it made complete sense. But to others, it felt like, at the time, certainly groundbreaking, coming out of a bit of a, a sort of utopian image of what the media should be. So yeah, like in your own words, tell me or tell our listeners what it felt like founding Navarra. Yeah. So I think the context in which you and I met each other, which was the 2010 student movement, uh, for people who are not aware of what that was, September, October 2010, it becomes clear that the new coalition government is going to triple tuition fees. There's very quick political pushback because they're trying to get it through as quickly as possible. It creates this incredible acceleration of antagonism between students, but not just students, also kids in further education, because, of course, they'll be paying those fees too. Uh, and recent graduates who are just in despair at this new coalition government ramming through austerity, leading with this increase in tuition fees and changing really the very idea of what the university is. So, so we meet in that context. And of course, that loses. It loses because the, the law changes. Fees are £9,000 today. And so we asked ourselves, people who participated in that movement, which was very impressive and effective, and it bypassed a lot of the kind of organisational sort of legacy organisations, organisational incumbents like the National Union of Students. We said, well, what next? And in the short terms of activist mindset at the time, there was the trade union congress demonstration on March 26th. Many people looked to that. But I was doing a PhD in media and social movements, and I was offered to do a radio show on Residence FM, uh, which I believe was maybe April that year, 2011. So uh, I did that. And then I didn't really have a vision for Navarra. It just it kind of serendipitously grew. I knew that I had a set of, I had an analysis of the media, which had been kind of confirmed by how the media had mistreated us, right? You know, I'd seen that firsthand over November, December, January. 
And of course, I had a sort of a bigger historic critique of the media because that was part of my PhD, right? What is the digital environment doing for social movements, for political activism, for communication and so on? But I didn't have a worked out idea of what Navarra Media was going to be. You know, I thought it was just going to be a weekly radio show with some of my friends coming on to talk about ideas. But very quickly, it became clear to me and then my co-host, James Butler, who joined quite quickly within a few months, really, that we were talking to a different kind of audience. People who were newly politicized, tended to be younger, very radical, but still coming to terms with what their thoughts and ideas are. Generally speaking, ambivalent about organization affiliation, even electoral politics, not all of them, but most of them. That's where we came from. But we, we certainly didn't have a worked out vision of, you know, today, if you ask me what's Navarra's mission in five years time, I would say to be the leading millennial socialist outlet in the anglophone world you know that's what that's what we want to be we want to have millions of people engaging with our content in five years humble aim yeah no but that's that's what we want i mean we might not get there but that's you know we we, we can see the we can see the the, the the peak of the mountain right whereas in in 2011 it was just doing a show with some friends so one of the things that a lot of people that i speak to who who think about navara and who are possibly aware of left-wing media immediately think is what other outlets have you based yourself on? And obviously at the time we already had in the States, the Young Turks and similar projects like that. Did you just have this as a vision for yourself and the Resonance FM opportunity came along? Or did you, at least in the sort of months that followed the beginning of Navara through Navara FM, look at what was happening in the States, for instance? It's a very, very important question. I don't know if I had the answer, really. We had a pretty worked out diagnosis about the challenges the media was being confronted with. There was clearly a new political moment which they were struggling to grapple with. There was potentially a new market in terms of young people, the sort of what Paul Mason called at the time, I think, sort of young people without a future, graduate without a future. So we saw there was this new kind of this market of, of people. I don't mean that in a financial monetary sense. I mean, in sort of how the right talk about ideas. But there were lots of people who who genuinely felt like their interests and needs weren't being met by the mainstream media. You obviously have this this ongoing, which carries on through to the present day, the collapse of print media. You have the BBC, which is this huge shibboleth for us on the left to talk about. I think that's changing. It's a liberal media institution. It's, not, it's certainly not a socialist one. And, and, and arguably, nor should it be. You know, it's a public service broadcaster. And so there was very little pushing back against that. So, I mean, Young Turks might be one example. You know, when we started, we didn't really have the vision of doing video, I'll be honest, or even articles. Like I said, it was just a podcast. It was a podcast really all the way through to, to 2015, fundamentally. But that that is already quite interesting because the fact that you were focusing on podcasting, one could argue was already quite for thinking because for the traditional orthodox left a lot of time mm. the way in which you would communicate would be through the traditional newspaper certainly for those like myself who come from a trotskyist background that yeah. was what we were doing pamphlets and newspapers yeah. uh, and uh, you know obviously the websites at one point or another because that was part of that but that was the logic behind it whilst yeah. you guys focused you and james butler focused on the radio show which is very different and then obviously there is the boom of podcasting or the beginning of it at that point so you know i, I thought that was brilliant at the time the thing is i think to any of your listeners out there who are, are journalists or want to become involved in journalism podcasting is a really amazing format you know and there's kind of these jokes about every leftist having a podcast now you know I, I guess we were sort of early adopters of that but podcasts allow you to do a couple of things the first is it allows you to build up, um, I mean, you know, this is all in retrospect, obviously, but these are the things I've learned. A podcast allows you to build up a, a contact book, 
you know, because you can get in touch with somebody. And often if you get in touch with somebody who's a best-selling author and you say, hey, I want to meet, have a cup of coffee, they're just going to be like, please leave me alone. If you get in touch with them, you say, look, I'd love to have you in my podcast, talk about your new book when you're next in town, you'll probably get a response or you'll, you know, it's highly possible. So that's the first thing, you build a network. Second thing is the cost of entry are very low. You know, you can do a good podcast now with your laptop with like, uh, basically 30, 30 quid, you can do a podcast as long as you have a good computer, 30, 40 quid, you can spend a couple of hundred quid and produce a podcast as good as something on the BBC. So the, the cost of entry are very low, unlike video. And then finally, I think podcasts are great because the people that produce them, first of all, you learn a set of skills as a journalist beyond just writing, because guess what? Anybody can do that. Top, top writing, top, top proof proofreading, top, top copy editing are very hard skills. I wouldn't, I'm certainly not smart enough to do them. James Butler is, for instance. But most journalists who, there's not a career for somebody who just thinks they can just be a columnist. It just isn't. There's not a career, generally speaking, for somebody who just wants to be a proofreader. Like I say, there will be at very high levels, but you know, it's the mass audience isn't getting behind that stuff. Um, if you're if you're intrigued by nonfiction, for instance, you know. So if you're thinking where, where are the sort of growth areas for journalism, you know, podcasts would be one, and you learn those skills by literally starting a podcast, right? You you learn by you learn by doing. And the great thing with podcasts is whether it's production, post production, i.e., putting the podcast together or making it, scripting it, talking into a microphone, creating a narrative arc, having to articulate yourself to an audience in a particular way, those are all quite transferable to video. And so once we had the podcast bit, it might sound a bit strange, but actually it was it was very easy to understand how we could go to video. Once you've got a podcast where you interview somebody for an hour and you have a sort of interview style down, there's an element of post-production, you have workflows, you have a, a, several people managing the production of something. To go to video actually isn't that difficult. Whereas to go from writing to a podcast or to go from writing to video is like a quantum leap. So the fact we started with a podcast, I think was quite fortuitous and it allowed us to go into video in a way that I can't imagine would have happened for somebody coming out of say a print publication or an online blog. And that gave us a certain level of agility by 2014, 2015 to adapt this whole new environment we see after the election of Jeremy Corbyn, really. Well, this is the thing, because one of the things that you were able to very quickly develop in a way that then obviously exponentially developed once, yes, Jeremy became leader of the Labour Party in, in 2015. In fact, since he put his bid in and you rallied behind him, was this tone for the left or for left narratives and left dialogue that wasn't really present, obviously not in audio and even less so certainly in this country as far as a video was concerned. But having a voice that is quite recognizable in mm. that way was extremely unique. And I wonder how that in and of itself developed. Do you think that was organic to the generation that we came from as far as activism is concerned, from the student movement, from the things that we're learning about communicating with the press at the time and the press mm. not listening to us as well. And that, I mean, obviously all of this in retrospect is fascinating to look at because we find ourselves now in still debating the, these topics in almost completely radically bigger proportions. But nonetheless, mm. those are things we're thinking about back then. So how do you think the tone of Novara developed, which has been for some, the reason why they love Novara, and for others, the reason why they hate Novara. 
<laughs> well, I, I mean, that's it. Would be I would be lying if I didn't say it, right? It is true that the, particularly within the mainstream media, it's one of the things they immediately pick up. That it's sort of we within the left alternative media, we don't talk like BBC broadcasters. Yeah, I mean, I mean, today, you know, I, I meet lots of intelligent people in the mainstream media who don't hate Navarra. You know, they value Navarra like I would value. You know, there was a great there was that great feature article today in investigative journalism in the Sunday Times. You know, they would they would say, oh, that's an interesting story. These guys, these people know something about this particular area or, or that's a particularly interesting guest they've got on. I'll see what they've got to say. I think that's I think that's how most mainstream media journalists sort of consider us. I think they give us a bit more legitimacy than perhaps sometimes appears from Twitter. There's a subsection of people, you know, there are people at the BBC, I won't say what programme they they work on, it involves Emily Maitlis. And there are, there are producers there who honestly think we're funded by Russian money. There are people that think I'm an Iranian double agent. And, and these are people with like senior jobs, not senior, I mean, quite senior jobs at the BBC, not so senior. They're not on the, you know, the board of trustees or anything, but they, you know, they're not, they're not T-boys. So that does exist, but I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say it's as bad as it sometimes looks. I think, I think it's more of a political issue which is professionally they don't see us as a threat. And, and and until probably the last several months, they probably shouldn't. I mean, we're at a really interesting juncture now for the rest of this year because you're going to see lots of newspapers collapse. You're going to see lots of online media outlets collapse. And you're going to see outlets like, and not just left wing, by the way, Navarra Media or, or Tribune or in the States, the NYT is doing phenomenally well out of Trump, right? With its paywall, it's got 5 million subscribers, some people are adapting quite well to the new environment, uh, and but many aren't. But I think the antipathy doesn't come from there. I don't think it comes from the, oh, they can make a living and I can't. Although that may be an issue in the future. That's quite plausible, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is one of the things I want to talk to you about, about sort of, you know, the new mis- business model in a way. Yeah, but I think I think the antipathy fundamentally so far has been political. So I'll give an example. I, I was on BBC this week with Andrew Neil. Michael Portillo, Lord Robert Winston, and Liz Kendall. Keeping great Winston. company, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Lord, Lord Winston was, you know, I think some people have said some horrible things about him because in the Lords he's voted one way or another. As a TV personality, he's always, always come across very well. Extraordinary person, the things he's achieved. And then in person, he was lovely. We got chatting away over a glass of wine after the show and so on. I tend not to want to be in sort of lovey media circles, but the guy's He's an academic at UCL, you know, a medical health professional. It's like a, he's an intriguing person to talk to. And I always, you know, you always want to learn from these people. But what was interesting is actually after the show, talking to Michael Portillo and Andrew Neil. Andrew Neil, you know, we were sharing a, a Japanese whiskey. Michael Portillo was perfectly cordial. And I know, I know, I know on a political level, they hate me, right? A conservative, they're so sure in their worldview and they know you're the enemy and they don't really see you as a threat that you're kind of like a curio almost, right? You're like, oh, who's this weirdo? That's kind of intriguing. And they can talk to you. But the the worst response of all wasn't from Michael Portillo, wasn't from Andrew Neil. It was actually from Liz Kendall. Liz Kendall couldn't even say hello to me. She couldn't even look me in the eye. She wouldn't shake my hand. And I think the reason is Liz Kendall has gone into those TV studios for 15 years and she's been the left-wing voice in there. She's been She's been the conscience of social justice. And all of a sudden, other people are in there who apparently are to, her, are to her left. And for 15 years, probably for her whole adult life, that's not been viewed as a legitimate opinion. And slowly but surely, it's becoming a legitimate opinion, right? And so for her, it's less a political issue. It's not like, oh, this person disagrees with me politically, like, say, Portillo or, or Andrew Neil would think. But it's almost like an existential challenge to her very her being, right? 
I am the person who's on the left. Those are the people on the right. How dare you come in and, and, and potentially attack my status as the person on the left? And that's how I think much the center left look at the left, whether it's in policy or in journalism or, you know, through the prism of the Labour Party or whatever. Celebrities, you know, look at these celebrities that hate Corbyn. It's because a lot of their, I think their their sense of self was built upon the idea that, you know, we're the, these quite progressive, nice liberal celebrities. It turns out there's loads of people out there who actually want a politics built on advancing the interests of working class people and organised labour. And they are blind to that. And that's, you know, because they come out with a sort of liberal mindset. Nothing wrong with that, right? But they need to understand that there's, there's, that isn't left wing, right? There's this whole other idea of, of how politics and society can operate. And for some people, that's led to a kind of real hatred. I think that's why Navarro is hated by many of those people, often not from the right, but often actually from the centre, which is intriguing in a way. I, I was wondering, because as you were talking about this, I was seeing this very dynamic reproduced in, and I'm jumping ahead on a lot of the questions here, but I think it, it fits within this conversation about the interactions that you have with, not only with the mainstream media, but also with the rest of the political landscape in this country. Because we saw that antipathy very much reflected in the labor leaks in the yeah. last week. And Navarro was one of the few and certainly the first media outlets that published an article about it, that talked about it, that analyzed it. And in fact, even though, of course, we're living in quite extraordinary times of, of corona and of complete focus on, on, on the lockdown and the consequences of this virus, it seems like that story would probably would have had a lot more attention before basically before the coronavirus, before COVID-19. Yeah. So I was wondering how you feel that all of a sudden your own role as a media organization has pivoted, not only because of the coronavirus, not only because there is now a new leadership in the Labour Party, which I also want to talk to you about in a minute, but also, you know, because you are now a media organization doing the job that other media organizations are not doing. We have produced coronavirus content, but the coronavirus story is going to be here for six, nine months. New York Magazine said we're one-eighth of the way through, if not one-twentieth. So I think it's important for journalists at any level to, you know, the idea that we can only cover one story at a time, because people have said, oh, you know, there's coronavirus, this is ridiculous, you're covering labour leaks. Well, first of all, we can cover more than one story at a time. Secondly, clearly, uh, senior management being alleged to actively try and lose a general election in a Western democracy is a massive story, obviously. And then thirdly, you know, we heard for weeks how dare you politicize coronavirus? It's not political. And of course, the minute you talk about something else, people say, how dare you talk about something else? So it's just, it's just, I think, just, it's just stupid. You can obviously do both. A newspaper is comprised of all kinds of stories. I don't see why our, our output should be any different. But in terms of a niche for us, I think you're right. I think that there's a huge opportunity now for left media in so much as there will be no criticism or even skepticism, actually of the Labour leadership under Keir Starmer. The Guardian's barely covered this. You know, I tweeted, I think last night, the Guardian's barely covered the Labour leak story. Major public interest. And that's not just an opinion. That's, that's, that's a legal, you know, that's legal advice given to us prior to our, our publishing two big stories. There are exemptions for publishing this material on the basis of overwhelming public interest. You clearly have that. And the Guardian will be told the same thing. And the reason why they've not published it is because it's it's politically difficult for Keir Starmer. That's the only reason why they have published uh, haven't published it. They did a couple of opinion pieces, 
and a thing about McNichol being moved out or recusing himself from his role in the House of Lords. Opinion pieces aren't original news gathering. Opinion pieces aren't exclusive stories. What the Sunday Times did today, they got a new spin on things from very important people undermining the narrative of the government. That's news. What was the Observer doing? That The major story in their weekend magazine was, oh, Change UK, what happened to them? That's not news. Uh, well, it certainly think, isn't news, <laughs> the Change and UK. I, and I, I think sort of centrist, and I don't like that term centrist because I think a lot of these people aren't actually centrist. I think a lot of these people just want to be in charge and they don't like socialists, but they also don't think they're Tories. And I don't think that's a liberal politics. I don't think it's a centrist politics. It can be far more malicious than that, actually. But people like The Guardian, people like The Observer, The New Statesman, in no way can many of their journalists or much of their output be qualified even as liberal, let alone left liberal. So there's a huge gap for us, I think, not just for Navarro, but for other people too, especially amongst the younger audience. You know, people under 40, they have a different way of looking at the world. They're engaging with reality in a different way. They know government and politics is failing them. They access media in a different way. And despite all the sort of prognostications, they're willing to pay for stuff. They are willing to pay for stuff. Millennials buy more print literature. They buy, millennials buy more books than boomers. Millennials are one of the biggest markets for buying printed books because we live in this digital culture of uh, everything is on screens. They want something tactile. So I don't buy the I don't buy the claim that oh well young people don't want to pay for print media. Maybe not a print daily newspaper, but whether it's a monthly magazine, whether it's a book, whether it's a journal, they want to do that. Or they want, do they want to pay for original news gathering? Well, you know, we've had a lot of good feedback after we broke these two stories. So, I mean, I would, I would submit yes. So the opportunities are absolutely there. And I, I think you're right. That, that dovetails with a kind of increasingly insipid uh, centrist genre of journalism, which, you know, in the US, it's still there. You know, the NYT still does a lot of good journalism. Here, I mean, my God, it's abysmal. It's going down the drain. I mean, it is quite worrying that it feels that even publications, so we're obviously talking about the printing press here mostly because there isn't a statutory obligation to be balanced necessarily mm. in this country, which is which is problematic because it was obviously one of the recommendations of the investigation into the hacking scandal was that the yeah. print media should also be obliging to the same rules as broadcasting. And obviously that hasn't been implemented by the conservative governments that followed David Cameron, who had pledged mm. to do as much. But in a sense, it also feels like even the printing press that wouldn't traditionally just echo whatever government would say now has certainly become much milder or perhaps at times have become politically far more aggressive and they haven't kept up. There is continuously in this country, I feel, at least for the generation that is still in senior positions in these places, a nostalgia for Blairism, the the 90s, effectively, a yuppieism, you know, that, that really hasn't been shed. And, and absolutely, I agree with you that in terms of new alternative media, and particularly for the left, this is a massive opportunity because the younger generations, our generation even, which is not even particularly young anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, we're entering middle age. Uh, well, you're, 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 you're a bit younger than me. I think, you're, I think you're still just about young. I'm in my early 30s. Yeah. So, okay, thank you. I'll take that. But I feel like certainly our generation and the ones that follow, as you say, I completely agree, are looking for something else and they are listening, well, certainly to Novara, but to alternative voices. So I was wondering, before we go into the question of politics and the editorial Novara and your relationship with the Labour Party since 2015, mm. just to go back to that question of, of your business model, I mean, nobody had expected that something like 
the coronavirus and COVID-19 would show up and accelerate a lot of processes that were already happening, particularly to the print media in this country. How do you feel that Fornavara in particular, but obviously as an example for the rest of, of media business models, that could happen? And also from a you know left-wing perspective, yes, it is something that you consume and you purchase. How do you keep a sense of democracy within the organization and with your readership as well? Do you feel like, in fact, it is a better model to implement than depending on advertisers? Yeah, I think, I think like you say, this has intensified. You know, we were talking about the death of the print media in 2010 when we first met. You know, it's 10 years later and it's still, you know, we weren't wrong. <laughs> they're, not, they're not doing well, but it is just very, it's a very slow thing. The only national newspaper, um, I could be wrong, that's folded purely for business reasons so far has been The Independent. You've had, obviously, the news of the world when it was replaced by The Sun on Sunday. I think maybe was it The Daily Sport, or The Sunday Sport, I think. But so far, most of them are holding on. And a lot of them aren't going to hold on for much longer. The Observer has a, a circulation of around 150,000. Guardian circulation around 150,000. A lot of print papers really, really struggling. And The Guardian, you know, it has a model beyond print as well. So there are incentives for it to not necessarily stick to print or be so dependent on it. Well, it's not dependent on it at all, actually. I think what coronavirus shows us is that before there were, there were three models, right? There was paywall, there was ads, and then there was the Guardian had this kind of supporter thing without a paywall. I think the coronavirus obviously it's killed people that base themselves on ads because you're seeing a huge a huge downturn just in the general economy and ad spend and people don't want to advertise alongside coronavirus content. But that was that was happening anyway because we know that Facebook and Google were basically just becoming these hugely optimized universes for advertising youtube the bang for buck the return on spend was just so much better there than anything you could do in any of these outlets i mean there's some you know there's some outliers if you if you sell expensive italian loafers yes you want an advertorial and monocle magazine right but that's not most products so the ads thing is is probably not a long-term way of running a business in isolation the paywall looks increasingly viable you know ft is doing really well even in the coronavirus crisis, you know, it could go to online only. It could still be a hugely influential publication. I mean, the interesting element there is that the FT has made articles about coronavirus free yeah. access yeah. because public information should be a free access. So there is that yeah. minor duality there. I mean, maybe it's yeah, not no, no, a parallel system. I think it's a very smart thing to do as well, because, look, if you need state subsidies at some point, which I think they all will, you say, well, look, we've made our coronavirus content. It's been it's been free at the point of use. It's been a part of a critical public service. So I think that's a smart thing to do. I think if the Sunday Times was smart, they would have done the same ahead of their ahead of their scoop yesterday or today rather. I think the the paywall thing works. You see, you see it with the NYT as well. You see it with Washington Post before all of this. The Economist, the ad thing probably doesn't work. And so the question is with the Guardian. It hasn't got. It doesn't really use ads. Really, doesn't have a paywall. And it has this kind of supporter thing, but it's and it's bringing in lots of money, right? The supporter thing, but is it is it going to be as lucrative and is it going to be scalable like an actual paywall? Because the NYT seems to have absolutely nailed that. I think the NYT now, and that's partly because of Trump. NYT I think has five million subscribers. I think they're aiming for ten million. That's just that's just crazy. You know, ten million monthly subscribers is a huge amount of money. I feel like there's a difference between you having a supporter system mm. and paywall sort of you're basically paying for the product much like you would if you had an actual physical paper 
because, and this is where Novara comes in in terms of your own, I feel, supporter bases, is that if you are going to appeal to supporters, then you are not selling necessarily just a product, but also the brand, the yep. analysis, not just, you know, you, you need brand loyalty. You need people to identify with the Guardian in that case or Novara uh, in yours to then say, yes, I want to every month give this much no matter what kind of content i'm receiving or how much or how little mm. whilst if it is a paid subscription to get the ft for instance it's pretty it's very it's almost like a, a the virtual version of having a physical paper you want the paper every day you know what you're getting yeah. that's it whilst with this sort of you know supporters voluntary voluntaristic money giving feels a lot more to do with with the analysis and 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 the people who support you basically it's in the word so i was wondering how you feel that novara within that plays a role about whether you would prefer to go into at some point a paywall of some kind no i don't think we'll ever go have a paywall i mean i'm sure i'm sure those words will haunt me but i I, i'm pretty certain we would never have a paywall ever i'm pretty certain we would never have any kind of gating to content on the basis of ability to pay and we have political commitments which which make that a reason it's not just something we think is nice it's you know it's why we would we're doing what we're doing. So the Guardian has something similar with the supporters thing. I just think that you probably can't run a a global news outlet like that. I think you probably need a paywall, you know, uh, to have the correspondence around the world and so on. The Guardian's journalism is nowhere near as good as the New York Times. It just isn't. You know, the Guardian's original news gathering from around the world is just not as good as the Financial Times. It's just, again, it's just not. I don't mean, is it, by, by British standards, the Guardian's a perfectly good newspaper. If I think about the two best English-speaking newspapers, without a doubt, it's the NYT and the and the, and the Financial Times. Uh, Washington Post up there. I mean, they have some pretty crap stuff sometimes too. But the Guardian is really slipping. I think it's actually slipped a lot since, and I wasn't a huge fan of his, Alan Rusbridger. I think it slipped significantly. When you think, when they got the Snowden stories out there, when you think how quickly they scaled up in the digital environment, because it is by British standards a tiny print newspaper, it became this global media brand, the Guardian. And I think they've actually, I think they've, to borrow, you know, some sort of part of my French, they pissed it up the wall, that goodwill. Uh, and they've obviously lost a lot of money while doing it. They went to Berliner, then they went to tabloid, then they probably won't be in print, you know, that you know, forever. I think the Observer is a terrible newspaper. They've broken some, you know, Carol Codwallader and so on, they've broken some big stories. What can you, other than Carol Codwallader, what was the last thing you remember reading in the Observer? I mean, these aren't making huge stories. Whereas I think about I can think of so many stories, you know, with with regards to Trump, scoop after scoop after scoop with the NYT. And there's nothing like that in Britain. So I I think for The Guardian, for instance, I think they're going to have to go to a paywall, I think, eventually. And I think that they want to do that top quality journalism thing. They're going to have to suck it up, not live in the 1990s. Well, this uh, is the thing. Is this also a question of editorial politics? Oh, for sure. Certainly. Hmm. Certainly. Part of the reason why they've not been able to do that is because of Corbyn, right? If, if they had a sort of a milquetoast centre-left candidate in there, we wouldn't have had this weird countervailing pressure that they've they've been, often they've been, the Guardian's been to the right of the of the Sunday Times on stuff. It's kind of weird. And they've lost a lot of political goodwill. Now, they have lots of money coming in from supporters for now. But I just think if they want to be, stay in that elite tier with regards to global news gathering, they're going to have to dispense with those politics and, and, and probably review the funding model. And, you know, they're not aiming. They're not aiming at the adults of tomorrow. You know, millennials are really old now. There are millennials with businesses and houses and kids. And the columnists, the Guardian, treat millennials like they're teenagers. 
You know, they're adults. The average age in this country, people don't realize that the median age in Britain today is 40. It's 40 years old. When you turn on the television and you see people talking about politics on Question Time or whatever, they're all over 50. All of them. That is that is not normal. That's not representative of society. You know, 30, 40 years ago, you had less so politicians, but you had trade union officials. You had people in senior management jobs just generally were in their 30s. That was an adult, right? You blossom into the adult form of who you are. But now the sort of the media, particularly liberal media, because it should be their target audience in particular, sort of treat dismiss anybody as of un, sort of under 45 as, you know, idiots. They almost hate, they hate their target audience. But it reminds me of what you said in the beginning about these are people who want to stay in control or keep the narrative under their control, you know, sort of the mainstream narrative, the great hegemon of politics and social discourse in this country. And Mm. they're the ones who were once 30 and they no longer are. They're close to 60 now. And they just not letting go over it. I mean, I think very often, certainly for younger generations in this country, that's how it feels like. And it feels both in terms of the media, but also in terms of politics, right? And I think now the interesting thing for us on the left to observe, and particularly for us who are journalists, for those of us who are journalists, is how does the new leadership of the Labour Party engage with this dynamic of, okay, the younger generations much rather prefer the policies and and the rhetoric of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. And yet the figure who has now been elected leader is at least in terms of aesthetic, I would say, and often in rhetoric as well, pandering a bit more to to that, you know, the former status quo. So within that, and just just to kind of move the conversation along a little bit, I'm quite curious because obviously Navarra was critical of the Labour Party before 2015, like we all were. And then when uh, Jeremy uh, Corbyn put his bid for leadership and then won the leadership, you rallied behind him. And and it was really fascinating to see both you in particular, but but also other other colleagues at Navarra own politics and how they developed with that, but also how the organisation itself had this sort of it felt from the outside or from I mean I I don't know if I should be considered outside because I'm not that outside but a little bit more outside than you are for sure Mm. this almost symbiotic relationship with the left wing of the party right like there were these close collaborations with organizations like Momentum and the World Transformed and I was wondering before I ask you further on on that relationship and how it has moved on a, how you now feel about those collaborations and whether, in hindsight, you wonder whether Navarra shouldn't have been a bit less entangled with with them for the sake of, you know, journalistic... Uh, I mean, I, I don't subscribe to the idea of, you know, completely unbiased journalism. I think we all mm-hmm. have our own biases, but nonetheless, a sort of detachment from what was going on within, you know, the inside of the party. Yeah, I think I think that's a good argument to say, look, you should it was probably to your own advantage to not do that. I mean, I don't personally buy that argument. I think we were confronted with a situation where Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, the policies, the policies are really popular. And and I would say the reason, you know, Keir Starmer, he won because he said, I like the policies. We like, you know, a lot of this was this is just gonna be Jeremy Corbyn's tenure as leader, but somebody who's we're just gonna shave off some of the social movement edges. We're a parliamentary party, but we're, we're kind of be like vanilla. European social democracy, some some interesting stuff that's you know a bit more radical, and and we'll have somebody who's a former lawyer. That's why he that's why he won, and that's why Rebecca Long Bailey lost, because she didn't really articulate herself as distinct in any meaningful way, but nor as a continuous yeah, a continuation either. 
Starmer was very clear to say, I'm a continuation of what's happened, but I want to change X, Y, Z. And Rebecca Long-Bailey could never work out if it was, do I completely reject the last five years or do I say I want to build them or what? She was kind of lost in terms of strategic communications on that. So I, I don't necessarily think that Starmer is a huge departure. We're going to have to see policy-wise. But clearly, as an organization, we have a very different relationship now to the Labour Party. Absolutely. And one of the reasons why we were so supportive of Jeremy Corbyn, and we were undoubtedly supportive of Jeremy Corbyn, was because you had somebody with these popular policies. You had somebody who, after 2017, had got 40% of the popular vote, and yet the entire media completely denigrated him. They denigrated the party. And I think that does create, from a public interest point of view, that does create a certain context which you have to respond to. And I think it's analogous to parliamentary selections. There was a by-election in Lewisham East in 2018, and the leadership could have rigged the shortlist, right? They could have made it an all-left shortlist. They chose not to do that. That never happened, right? Despite what the media say, and as we've seen in the Labour leaks documents, the right did try and rig candidate selections. The left never did. Even if it wanted to, the right would have stopped it, but it, it never did. But I think there was a strong argument to say, well, actually, it should be an all-left shortlist because your agenda's got 40% of the popular vote. You've been twice elected as leader, and yet that isn't reflected. We know the composition of the membership, and yet that's not reflected in the Parliamentary Labour Party. I think that, you know, normally I wouldn't say, yes, it's fine to rig a selection in a, in a broad party with centre-left socialists and trade unionists. But in that context, I can, I can, see, the, I can see the argument, right? You pick the actual candidate, a la Blair and Mandelson, but you say, no, we're going to have five candidates who are all trade unionists, who are all committed to the 2017 manifesto. That's that's that, because the party has to reflect what the membership thinks and what we went to the country with, and very successfully too. So I think that, that broader context comes in, and that's why we were so close to organisations like Momentum and TWT. And I don't think we would change that. You know, I think we were operating in an incredibly unique context. Now, you know, when, when, when I say something that's critical about Starmer, People's, and I think Starmer deserved to win the leadership election, by the way. I thought he was the best candidate. I, I voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey. I think she had the best political programme. But I think Starmer as a package is a much better politician than Long-Bailey. I have many misgivings about him, by the way. But I, I can see him being prime minister more than her. And I can see him potentially keeping more of the agenda than she does. I don't think he will. Right. I, I actually don't think he will. But it is more plausible in any case. Um, and I think We live important. in hope. Yeah, and I think it's important the left under his leadership, if it's if it's unified and coherent and ambitious, it can carve out a really important space for itself. Where does that leave I, Navarra then within within well, yeah, this new so, context? Well, so the con so the context changed in so much as I've been very critical of Keir Starmer about certain things. You know, um, I'll give you, let me give you an example. He did his first interview. It was on Mar the week after he won, the weekend after he won the leadership race. And I I was I was saying this is he's done really well. This is a really good interview. I thought his response to things was was professional and considered. Then he does another interview with the BBC Politics podcast the other day, where he says, I don't like going to the members. I don't like selling myself. I far prefer, oh yeah, oh wow. What a surprise, a 59-year-old former barrister in Queen's Council, white guy, likes being in charge. Real surprise. He thinks that's his strength. Okay. Uh, so, you know, and I would go in and I would say that. And people say, oh, you're being so unfair. You, you wouldn't have said that about Jeremy Corbyn. And it's like, well, yeah, because everybody else was slagging off Jeremy Corbyn. That's part of the reason. And so you have to you have to respond to the context to an extent. And I will vote for Labour at the next general election. I'm a Labour Party member. Like I say, I think Keir Starmer was the best choice to lead the party. But I, I'm going to be a lot more sceptical about him than I otherwise would have been, given the political pressures that have kind of moved about in the post-Corbyn era. So would would you... 
I mean, this is perhaps a bit redundant after what you just said, but just for the for clarification, would you argue that a left-wing media has a responsibility to obviously be critical when critique is due, but also to almost calculate how critical it is depending on the external approach that the rest of the mainstream media takes to mm. to the project, to the left project um, du jour and, you know. Yeah, I mean, even the BBC, the BBC's, the BBC Charter says we will create effectively, although it doesn't do this, sadly, we'll create independent news and we won't be, our output won't be shaped by that of other outlets. And so I, I don't think it's a particularly radical thing to say, well, as a left media outlet, if everybody is slagging off a socialist Labour Party leader, we're going to investigate other angles and other stories. I don't think that's a particularly radical thing to say. I think it's a perfectly reasonable, logical thing to say. And people might disagree with that. Although, honestly, you know, I made many, many criticisms of the Corbyn leadership, just people often chose not to hear them. I said after 2018, the uh, after the conference, I said, not passing mandatory selection means probably the Corbyn project won't succeed. I went on record saying that multiple times. And I, and I think that's possibly proven right that, you know, the inability to actually, the absence of ruthlessness is the reason why Corbyn, you know, didn't didn't win he could have even though his enemies were vicious as we've seen from the leaks and so on he had the opportunity to deal with them politically and ultimately he chose not to ultimately and, and the left has to own that so you know we, were, we weren't just cheerleaders uh, despite some of the misrepresentations no if anything i think cheerleading meant the sort of tiger mother you know from <laughs> from the uh from the sides shouting for uh them to run faster perhaps we were cheerleaders but not in a sort of complete fawning over and 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 just being blind to any handicaps that the project might have had i think i think that would be a very harsh analysis of what both navara but the rest of the left media has been doing over the last five years but within that i mean i wanted to then move on to where where do you i mean obviously you'd already said that you would be a lot more critical of or a lot more attentive to certain things and openly critical how do you feel that works for Navarra as well I mean do you mean to say that perhaps you will start exploring other areas of investigation that aren't just politics and are social as well perhaps focusing some of the resources on on other topics how does that also work within the editorial line I mean you have contributors with quite different political or I mean I guess for the average person, perhaps not that quite different, but for us, quite mm. different political uh, perspectives, you know, from Michael Walker's social democracy to, you know, Ash's libertarian communism or, or your own trajectory from, you know, being in the Greens and then joining Labour and being a, a very vocal advocate for the Labour Party. How do you feel that then these new changes to the political environment in Britain will affect your own editorial line? Yes, yeah, so I think me, me leaving the Greens and joining Labour after voting for Jeremy Corbyn, which was quite funny. There's a story in Channel 4, I think in 2015, and they interviewed me. And, and I actually went to the Green Party. I said, is it, you know, I spoke to the, the, the memberships people. This is how kind of relaxed the Green Party are. I said, as a member of the Green Party, can I register as a supporter and participate in the Labour leadership election? They went, yeah, no problem. And so I said this to Channel 4 and it sort of became a bit of a story. After Corbyn won, I joined the Labour Party. I said many, many Greens. And I don't, I don't view that as development, so to speak. You know, I view myself as a, as a socialist who takes uh, climate systems breakdown very, very seriously. And I saw the best solution to that in the Miliband era as being a Green Party member. The Greens got a million votes almost in 2015. Uh, I was one of them. 
And that changed quite quickly with the uh, ascent of Jeremy Corbyn. So I mean, my politics has changed as anybody does and should. But I, I don't think the, the Greens to Labour thing was necessarily a big shift. And in fact, one of the one of the interesting statements in the Labour leaks document is, you know, a senior member of Labour management saying we have a bloody green leading the Labour Party, by which he meant Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which is you know, quite interesting. His style of doing politics as much as obviously the emphasis on, on on climate change policy being a lot better than it previously had been. In terms of our editorial line, you know, we I'm not an articles editor. I think I'm not even in the editorial team. I wanted to help the organisation be far bigger than any one person, because obviously if we're going to build durable organisations, that has to happen. And we have a we have a sort of modus operandi in the organisation. If any of us got hit by a bus, we could still carry on almost entirely as before. We're not entirely there. Where well, you've met probably our head of video and you've met our head of, well, until recently, our articles editor. And we're not quite there yet, but that's where we want to be. So in terms of editorial sort of policy, you know, I don't really have much to do with that now. I'm sort of more focused on my own output. Although it has to be said, sort of the the contributing editors as they are, Michael Walker, Ash, myself, James, we do have quite a lot of autonomy to sort of determine our own our own content really. So it's an interesting balance to strike. We've never really had a political falling out. You know, with the, with the Corbyn stuff, I was probably the first one to really jump on it and say this is a really big deal. James was a bit more, James and Ash were more ambivalent uh, because they they sort of, you know, they're more inclined to, you know, I would, I would still call, I don't think James would probably, he'd be very upset if I called him an anarchist, actually. I think, I think they still are close to that politics than I am. I would call myself a I call myself a fully automated luxury communist because I have a certain understanding of capitalism and post-scarcity. But in the here and now, I would, I would call myself a sort of democratic socialist in a, in, a, in a way that they might not. Although I think in the last couple of years, our politics have all kind of actually converged to a significant extent. Yeah, I, um, I would say from an outside observer that probably to, yeah. to a degree. You, yeah, so right. we've, we've, not had a, we've not had a major political falling out. But, you know, the question is, why is that? It's because we all get along and we all came out of a certain political moment. However, if you if we scale up, you know, right now we've got what, 15 people or whatever. Okay, well, what happens when you have 150 people? Right, that that's when it's going to become a problem. But so far we're doing okay. Well, then then the next question must obviously be what next for Navarra and what next for Aaron Bastani? So Navarra, as I said a bit earlier in the show, by 2024, by the mid 2020s, we want to be the biggest millennial socialist media outlet in the Anglophone world. Why millennial? Why the focus on millennial? Well, I look at Rupert Murdoch and how he basically became the sort of the, the boomer media mogul. You know, he bought he bought the sun and the news of the world in late in the late 1960s. He was on a journey with his core audience. It starts with that. They get a bit more affluent by the late 1980s. They can afford to buy a satellite dish. They get that Sky subscription. Now they're in their mid 60s. They've got a Times subscription on their iPad. And so that, that's how I that's how I look at us. We're, we're basically trying to be an integral part of the, the sort of political life cycle of a certain group of people that graduate without a future. Now, of course, we're trying to appeal to older people, too. I mean, that would be stupid not to both politically and, and, and as a business. Uh, and of course, we're trying to appeal to Gen Zers and younger people as well, whose whose material experience of capitalism is actually very similar, if not worse, uh, than millennials. But that's what we're looking at right now. And we want to sort of develop that. Substantively, what does that look like? Uh, just a lot more content, events, a lot more merch. Hopefully at some point an app. It'd be nice to have an Avara app like the FT or the Guardian with push notifications and updates. The app to me is kind of like a newspaper. I mean, the push notes, anything with push notifications now is kind of like a newspaper. 
What about news in terms of almost live news, if you see what I mean? Yeah. Is that the direction good... that Navarre wants to take? Because currently you do a lot of analysis and then occasionally yeah. you do pieces of reportage. Yeah. I mean, live, live, we do, we do a daily live show at the moment, only for an hour a day. Would that be a future? I mean, if you look at democracy now in the Young Turks, I think some, somewhere where they wouldn't call it a failure, they imitated sort of cable TV genre, right? Which is very capital intensive, very time intensive. And I'm sure if they started again today, would they do that? Probably not. So do, do we want sort of rolling news on our YouTube channel? Hard to say. I mean, I, we probably would like, ideally, you know, in a couple of years, maybe three hours daily content for sure. Just as on a side note, this is me like, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I was part of it, but I, I thought one of the brilliant things during the election coverage last year was how, you know, to a certain degree, if people felt completely alienated from the way in which Sky or BBC were covering it, they were switching to Navarra because there there was live news happening. You know, you, you mm. had a, a, an almost direct line to some candidates from the Labour mm. Party. And and you had people reporting from local polling stations, and yeah. that felt really exciting and fresh. And so, obviously, for any reporter, I would say who who likes Navarra, who likes to work with Navarra, which is my case, that's the kind of direction that we look at and think, oh, this is really exciting. It'd be great if more more stuff like well, that could happen. No, we want to do. I mean, well, let's say the next general elections in twenty twenty four. That we are going to cover that so well. I honestly think we'll cover that election better than Channel Four in terms of national reach, in terms of original news gathering, in terms of video content, in terms of how engaging and fun the journalism is. I, I think we're gonna I think it's gonna we're gonna smash it out of the park. In terms of the 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 sort of the journalistic stuff, the the scoops, you know, it's something we came to later because comment is obviously just so much cheaper to make. It's fun, you know, it's fun to do, it's easy to do. But it's obviously something we're, we're, we're going to be doing a lot more of, the sort of original investigation. And that, that's the stuff that really, you know, that's the stuff that, that changes things. And there's a, there's a huge, huge, huge gap there. And it's another thing to go back to sort of attacking the observer. That there are so many amazing stories out there. And it's one of the things, you, as you become a journalist, you get, involved, you get the contacts, you learn all these amazing stories, you can't run all of them, etc. You realize how many crazy stories there are out there. And yet, actually, a lot of these guys aren't bothering to follow them up. I, I would I, add, in fact, that a lot of these guys are not willing anymore to follow them up. You know, the, just think of the amount of sections in newspapers that have fallen to, by the wayside, like trade union or cyndical mm. topics or what, industrial, which is to be called the industrial section, or, you know, an actual well-researched and well-resourced social affairs department, you know, yeah, I guess the garden still has a relatively good housing section, although that was yeah. sponsored and has sort of partly closed down recently. But in general, as far as our mainstream media is concerned, the interest seems to now be exclusively either on politics from a very, in my view, very narrow perspective or on economics, financial matters, which is tragic, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, I love Monocle magazine. Uh, it's a terrible magazine to read. The stories and the features are quite short. There's lots of advertising. It's very expensive. But what I like about Monocle, and you don't really get it with much media now, is you buy a copy of Monocle and you, you flick through it. Often you do literally flick through it because there's so little content actually in there. But it's like going on holiday. You know, I, if I, I'll have a copy of Monocle and I'll put it down. I've finished reading it. And it, it, I feel so optimistic about life. And I feel enthused. And I feel, wow, there are amazing people out there doing amazing things. 
and it's really interesting and the world's a really remarkable place and there's not much media that makes me think like that you know it's maybe maybe the ft sometimes you know the weekend supplement you've got good culture supplement you've got good opinion good news the economist a little bit a tiny bit i don't agree with it ideologically but it's occasionally like these are really amazing stories out there tribune does it sometimes that some nice obviously they're just starting out it's going to hopefully become more of a feature of their work but very very rarely do you think wow this stuff is changing the world it's it's making me so enthusiastic about life which i think should be the first of a storyteller it should be the very first mission and you don't really you don't really get that sense with much media and hopefully that's something we can we can convey in the next sort of three four five years amen on that note, what what about yourself? What what is I mean, obviously you had your book published last year, Fully Automated Luxury yeah. Communism. What next for Ambassani? Yeah, so Fully Automated Luxury Communism is in paperback in June, I think. It's in eight or nine languages at the moment. It's in an audio book soon. Have you recorded it? No, 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 no. I, I'm not to the best of my knowledge. I, I don't think I mean it's like we only negotiated it what, two months ago. So there, there's that, and there's probably, we'll probably try and get it into another five, six languages. I mean, if I hit 20 languages, I'll be so happy. I'll, ha I'll have that in my Twitter bio. Uh, Translated uh, in over 20 languages. Yeah. And then I think, obviously, it's it's about the next book. Yeah. So. And any any peek that you can, sneak peek you can give us? Uh, I've, got, I've got three or four ideas I'm sort of presently negotiating, both with myself and a couple of editors, but... Um, there's just, again, it's about all these stories out there. There's so much to write about, Joe. You know, fully automated luxury communism could have been, it could have been three times bigger. Books. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, one, one thing I'm really fascinated by is the aging crisis. It's going to be worse than climate change in the short term and nobody's talking about it. In, in a way, we're already seeing certainly the uh, logic of governance in certain, it, within the neoliberal space, right? About yeah. th that precise crisis i mean i thought to bring back the question of the things that navara does that no one else does the fact that i thought you're one of the few if not the only person talking about how this aging crisis and the coronavirus crisis have intersected very rapidly yeah. in this country yeah. and i thought it was tragic that nobody was talking about that the the the, the nonchalance with which boris johnson talked about your, some of your loved ones dying yeah which is, I think, very much premised on on the logic of, well, we need to lower the average age of this country anyway because there is an aging population, not enough yeah. young labor force to sustain it within a, within the minuscule welfare state that they imagine yeah. to have. So, well, an aging an aging population an aging population is like resource scarcity. You know, it's a hard limit. It's a hard limit on capitalist growth. And you know, if you're a capitalist, you don't want resource scarcity. Why the hell do you want? You know, you don't want the number of over 80s to triple in the next 30, 40 years, which is what's going to happen. So it's a hugely understated crisis, which is on the horizon. Not just for us, by the way, the, the sort of front line for this is is China, Russia, Brazil. But I think there's, there's six or seven very large economies by 2050 basically are bankrupted by demographic aging without any policy changes. Of course, there will be policy changes. Saudi Arabia, Brazil, Russia, the United States is one, uh, Japan. So... I mean, Japan's already it, there very much. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascinating topic. And it's one I'd like to talk about. You know, it's obviously future oriented as well. And when people think about the politics of the future, they don't think about old people. But that is ultimately what happens to an aging yeah, We are the old people of the future. <laughs> well, one, one would hope, obviously. So in yeah. that note, what, I mean, the last question I always ask my guests is, what are you reading at the moment? Oh, that's a great question. I've read a lot of books this year. 
even though we're only in April, I've read a lot of books. Well, we're all stuck books. at home. Yeah, I've read more, but I actually kind of stopped. Well, I've been working so much since the coronavirus kicked in. I, for some reason, I was sort of vociferously reading media-related books earlier this year. The most recent books I've read, I read a great book on the United States. Who was it by? An American scholar. And it's basically about James Buchanan, who set up a, he was an integral neoliberal economist. He's won a Nobel Prize. Uh, James Buchanan, and, and basically how often we think about neoliberalism building on ideas of anti or undemocracy coming out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire with obviously von Mises with Hayek. But actually, there's a different lineage which traces neoliberal ideology back to basically the Confederacy and segregation, which is quite interesting. Basically, you, the first proposals for voucher schools were generated in response to desegregated schools. People that wanted to keep school segregation by other means basically viewed vouchers as one way of doing it. So I can't remember the name of the book, but it's it's brilliant. I've got it on um, a blog I have on luxurycommunism.com about the sort of 20 books to read for 2020. Okay, so it's uh, part of those. Yeah, but the thing I've just I've just read recently, the last book was Crashed by Adam Tooze, which I'd listened to as an ebook before, but that was probably a big mistake. It's 600 pages. I was going to say that's the kind of thing I could not absorb if I'm just listening to it. Yeah, it's not it's not the same. It's still a good ebook, you know. It's obviously it's good, you know. You work out to or walking or whatever, but um, no, the book is the book is brilliant. And uh, one of his previous books I would also really recommend is Wages of Destruction, which is on the, the Nazi economy. So yeah, Adam Two is very good. Fantastic, Aaron. Thank you so much. This was great. This was brilliant. My pleasure, Joe. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did. And this was another episode of Red Hacks, a show about being a left-wing journalist in a neoliberal world, hosted by Politics Theory Other. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to subscribe to Politics Theory Other on iTunes and leave a review. And if you want to support Politics Theory Other, please consider becoming one of our patrons for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2, at patreon.com forward slash Theory Other. 